3: This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to. With Dylan Behan.
0: Yes, g'day everyone. Welcome to News Fighters for today, Friday, the tenth of September, twenty twenty-one. News Fighters is a quick and somewhat humorous look back at the week in news and politics in Australia, presented by me, Dylan Bain, the ivermectin of news comedy. Coming up in today's show, my guest is Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney, Jess Scully. Yes, an actual, real-life politician. Here on News Fighters to talk about what Sydney could look like post-lockdowns.
1: I think there's going to be a slow process of recovery. I think uh, we're going to have to bounce back in a much more cautious way. So I, I I think kind of the silver lining is that we're going to be doing a lot of stuff outside. But first
0: up, the absolute biggest story everyone in the media is talking about.
3: Trouble in the temple. The monk caught shopping at Sexyland. It's a bad back month. A
0: current affair tonight. I'm sorry, what? A current affair? Even by your normal standards, which is just chasing dodgy tradies or shoplifters down the street, this is low. Now you're just chasing a, a shopper. Half of Australia is in lockdown thanks to a botched vaccine rollout and a botched light lockdown. And you're like, you know who the real enemy is that all of Australia should be focused on? That Buddhist monk who went shopping at Sexyland. What's next? A nun who went to Bunnings? A pope getting a latte? Lift your game, a current affair. Of course, the real big news story this week was the sluggish start to Australia's vaccine rollout could have been avoided after shock
2: emails suggested the federal government delayed key meetings with Pfizer.
3: Pfizer invited Health Minister Greg Hunt to discuss its vaccine with senior global
0: executives. The invitation was declined. To be fair, Greg Hunt isn't well known for being very good with technology. The Twitter account of Health Minister Greg Hunt liked a pornographic tweet just after five o'clock this morning. So Health Minister Greg Hunt took his time getting back to a multinational drug company that was offering us gobs of life-saving vaccines. So what? Probably didn't slow things down that much, right? Australia eventually signed a deal in November, four months after Pfizer's first contact. <laughs> oh, four months! You know, exactly the same amount of time as Sydney's lockdown is projected to go for. Uh, I think I'll go check my spam folder, make sure I haven't missed any important emails. But don't worry, Scott Morrison assures us that he did everything he could to get more vaccines earlier. The Prime Minister was pressed about what efforts he went to to get more vaccines. Oh, every effort that we could. When asked what efforts were taken. No, I've answered the question. Well, I'm certainly convinced. Good job, everyone. And, and happy 12th week of lockdown to you, Prime Minister. Of course, you can trust Scott Morrison on vaccines. He knows the names of all of them. Do we have enough of the Pfizer to go around?
3: Well, it's not just Pfizer. There's, there's the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's the Pfizer vaccine.
0: And- what? You already said Pfizer. It's a bit like saying, uh, for dinner, we're having vegetables and potatoes. Morrison also can't count percentages. We've gone past the halfway mark, 40% double-dosed. F- sorry, what? Last time I checked, 40% is not more than half. No wonder these guys are so bad at running the economy, they can't even count. Scott Morrison was also in the news this week for stuffing something else up. Many
2: families across the country were unable to gather for Father's Day this past weekend due to COVID restrictions and border closures, but the Prime Minister got his Father's Day wish after being granted an exemption to travel to Sydney and return
0: to Canberra. No, I'm sorry, that's clearly a lie. Nobody has ever wished to return to Canberra from Sydney. Some news reporters just use the Father's Day story as an excuse to brag about their own Father's Day presents, like Peter Van
3: Onselen from 10 News. The Prime Minister returned here to Kirribilli House just in time for Father's Day on Sunday, a chance to see his daughters, who he hadn't seen for weeks, and perhaps also pick up a Father's Day present from them, like this tie my daughters bought me a couple of years ago.
0: Oh, bloody good on you, mate. You got a tie, did you? For Father's Day. (laughs) Good thing Peter Van Onselen wasn't around to report on the Christmas Day cyclone that flattened Darwin in 1974. He probably would have just used it as an excuse to show off his brand new cufflinks he got. So why was Scott Morrison allowed to leave and then return to Canberra.
3: He was given an exemption to enter lockdown Canberra by the territory government because he's an essential worker.
0: Essential worker? No, I'm sorry, that's debatable at best. He's definitely not essential, and I've never seen him do any actual work. He just seems to go on holidays all the time. Morrison also wasn't impressed with being criticised. visiting his family. The Prime Minister
2: is defending his decision to travel to Sydney to spend Father's Day with his family, accusing his critics of taking cheap shots.
3: It's a bit of a cheap shot, to be honest.
0: Maybe it was a cheap shot, but I'll tell you what wasn't cheap. The $6,000 it cost to charter the Air Force plane, according to Sky News. Hell, when I was at uni in Canberra, we were lucky to afford the Murray's bus. It was $20. Now that's cheap. Anyways, the Australian public wasn't impressed either.
2: Reunited with his family for Father's Day, the Prime Minister
0: fails the pub test over a trip to Sydney.
3: But what we're talking about here, Rob, is it's failed the pub test, this one, hasn't it?
0: I'm sorry, pub test? There's no pubs anymore. All the pubs are closed. We can't call it a pub test. At best, it's the, like, awkward Friday night Zoom drinks test or the pouring a beer into your keep cup and going for a walk around the neighbourhood... All alone test is what I've heard people are doing. Scott tried to offer up some empathy. I can understand people's frustration. Yeah. So why did you do it? Clearly, he thinks the phrase leading by example only applies to like Barnaby Joyce when he's left in charge. And yes, acting Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce is a thing again. We're going to have to get used to it. Scott Morrison's the kind of a guy that if you are lost together in the middle of the desert, he'd drink the last drop of water from the bottle and say, uh, I understand, you must be thirsty. Anyways, on to Victorian politics now.
3: Three years after losing in an election landslide, Matthew Guy is back in charge of the Liberal Party.
0: Well, it took less than 10 minutes for the Liberal Party to dump its leader of three years and go back to the man who lost the last election. Yes, and nothing says we're the winning team like backing the loser once more. And Matthew Guy sure sounds ready to lose again.
3: Do you really reckon you can win? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Matthew Guy wouldn't say why he was the better person to face up to Daniel Andrews. And you can do the character assessments. All right, then you seem boring. Yes, no doubt. Matthew Guy's election slogan will be "Vote for me. I'm different to Dan Andrews." Not sure how. Not sure if I'm better, but you know, I'm physically a different person to Daniel Andrews. Vote one, Matthew Guy, Mister Guy. Yes, that's his name, actually. (laughs) Had his reasons for wanting the leadership, though. Matthew Guy says he wouldn't have rolled Michael O'Brien had the COVID crisis not persisted into this year. Sorry, what? Yes, the reason I'm the perfect opposition leader is, uh... COVID. Sorry, no questions. They also announced the new deputy leader.
2: With Matthew Guy elected unopposed, David Southwick voted in as his deputy.
0: Yes, got to love the Liberal Party. The leadership battles are always between straight white married middle-aged white men. I said white twice because they're very white. They got rid of the most uh, multicultural candidate on offer there as well. Michael O'Brien was at least born in Dublin, Ireland. That's pretty multicultural for the Liberal Party. And also, what is it with these uh, Victorian politician names? Up north, we have Berejiklians and Palaszczays, and in supposedly cosmopolitan, multicultural Melbourne, all their politicians are white Anglo-Saxon men with completely interchangeable first names and surnames like Matthew Guy and Daniel Andrews. At this rate, the next Victorian premier will probably be someone named Craig David or Paul Kelly or James... James... James James. Anyways, from the spill, they uh, went straight to Parliament, which was still sitting, surprisingly. Mr Guy taking his new seat in Parliament.
3: Uh, I'm now becoming, I'm now the leader of the
0: opposition. Yeah, even he couldn't believe he'd, uh, he'd made it there. Meanwhile, all the uh, politicians in New South Wales are like, Parliament is sitting? Parliament doesn't sit in a COVID outbreak. That means government could be held to account. That's not how it's meant to work. Also, me being from New South Wales, I'd uh, amazingly never heard of the big scandal which had previously derailed Guy's political ambitions. And it has the best name for a political scandal that I've ever heard. Nor will it stop questions about Mr Guy's now infamous lobster with a mobster. Yes, I have no idea what uh, lobster with a mobster is, but uh, from here in New South Wales, it definitely doesn't look like a scandal. Ask, Ask any politician in New South Wales... If they've had lobster with a mobster and they'd be like, let me check my diary. Yes, I had three last week. I mean, how is this a scandal? In New South Wales, we have political scandals along the lines of like an MP's secret third mistress sold the Sydney Harbour Tunnel to developers for $1 to be turned into an underground casino. And even then, literally nobody cares. It would be lucky to make page five. Lobster with a mobster. Get some real corruption, Victoria, and get back to me. Now on to lost child news.
1: Three-year-old Anthony A.J. Elfalak missing in bushland in the New South Wales Hunter region since Friday is tonight back in his parents' arms.
0: Yes, the little child lost in bushland has been found, but it's not all good news.
1: And in developing news tonight, New South Wales Health has advised people who are involved in the search for missing toddler AJ Flack to get a COVID test and isolate. Authorities say there were people from LGAs of concern and fears there could also be exposure at a nearby monastery. Exposure at a
0: monastery? Well, to me that sounds like it could be the fault of the monk caught shopping at Sexyland.
3: It's a bad back mum.
0: Now on to the latest in Australia's Delta Forest.
2: Death is horrible, but we also need to put things into perspective because at the moment there are 8 million citizens who don't have a choice in how they spend their free time.
0: And first, let's go to South Australia and their latest. COVID isolation hack.
2: Nine news can reveal COVID-19 quarantine signs must now be placed on the front doors of homes in South Australia where returned
0: travellers are isolating for two weeks. Yes, and what could go wrong? I'm sure local neighbourhood kids in Adelaide definitely won't be egging those houses or leaving flaming bags on their front doorsteps knowing full well the people inside can't chase them down afterwards. Good job.
3: Judas Priest Barber is one of those flaming bags again.
0: Also in New South Wales this week... Today, vaccinations were made mandatory for all police. Yes, finally, you can feel safe from COVID while you're being strip-searched at a music festival or capsicum sprayed in the face at a protest this summer. Thanks, team. Of course, the
3: big COVID news in New South Wales this week is... sydney ciders could soon be sipping a schooner in the pub or getting a haircut, with the Premier today revealing her roadmap to freedom.
0: Yes, that's right, pub day is coming, and it could be before kids go back to school because... You know, priorities. Sandra Sully at 10 News couldn't help but make the good news sound depressing, though. Tonight, we know what the road to freedom looks like. It will be a hard road with more lives lost and pain to come. Yes, but pub, Sandra Sully. Pub. Pub, pub, pub. Haircuts. Pub. And look, I'm sorry. What she said sounded awfully like the tagline to, like, an apocalyptic Mad Max movie. (laughs) The road to freedom will be a hard road with more lives lost And pain to come. Fury Road 2. Road harder. Scott Morrison reminded us of
3: some of the things we have to look forward to. Australia can be connected again and connected with the world. People can attend weddings. People can go and have household gatherings and birthday parties.
0: And sadly, they'll have funerals. Yay, funerals! Oh, no, actually. Uh... It turns out he might not be wrong about that. The Premier determined to push ahead and relax restrictions mid-October, despite official predictions will hit
2: the worst caseload in history At exactly the same time. Coincidentally, uh, the worst time in hospitalisation is likely to be the time that we open up, but that shouldn't stop us.
0: Yes, because nothing makes you want to go to the pub more than overflowing ICUs. Well, at least our uh, hospital and ambulance workers will be able to have a schooner on the way home after an 18-hour shift at the Hellface Apocalypse. That's freedom, baby. New South Wales style. Yes, Gladys is saying this pub and funeral fun day will come for vaccinated people once the state reaches 70% double-dose vaccination around mid-October.
2: We will get to 70% double-dose uh, when people get their second dose, when people come forward to get vaccinated. And these uh, freedoms will come into place the Monday after that occurs.
0: But the media reports that reopening at 70% wasn't their health advice the premier was given.
1: The Australian newspaper is suggesting this morning that Gladys Berejiklian may have uh, ignored health advice that suggested we should be reopening at the 80 to 85% vaccination uh, point. This will be the 70% instead.
0: Wow. New South Wales prioritising the economy and reopening earlier than the health advice recommends. How? Completely expected and predictable. Well, is hoping it doesn't lead to too many extra deaths. Hospitalisations and lockdowns because the New South Wales government couldn't be bothered waiting an extra couple of weeks to reopen all the Bunnings. Here's hoping. At the 11am press conference, the New South Wales Chief Health Officer Kerry Chant remained very coy on what she actually recommended to the government.
2: Is it true that you did advise or, or push to Cabinet that you prefer an 85% rather than 70% as a uh, threshold?
1: Look, let me just reframe. I'm really very excited by the way that the community is embracing immunisation.
0: Well, that sounds like a definite yes to me. And what a complete misdirect with that answer. I mean, geez, imagine if you tried an answer like that in high school. The principal was like, uh, Dylan, was that you graffitiing the boys' toilets and smoking? And you answered, look. Let me just reframe. I'm really very excited by the way the school community is embracing the new curriculum. You'd be immediately expelled. Chant did elaborate a little and say the reopening was contingent on case numbers continuing to come down. Dr Chant, you're comfortable with the uh, pubs and gyms opening at a 70% mark? That you're
2: comfortable
1: look, with look, as I said, I think the roadmap gives certainty to businesses about what it looks like. I think the Premier's been very clear that this is all contingent on us getting case numbers
0: down. Yes, the Premier has been very clear about the case numbers going down. Sorry, what's that, Premier?
2: So we're not suggesting case numbers are going to go down at all during this period. When you reopen, you expect an increase in case numbers.
0: Oh, well, good to see everyone's on the same page as usual. Also contradicting himself is Deputy Premier and Minister for Regional New South Wales,
3: John Barillaro. I know the people of Orange, for instance, uh, the last couple of days have had walking clinics. They've come forward and they've been vaccinated. Yesterday, the walk-in clinic was overwhelmed. Uh, we had to actually start treating people away, and that's great news.
0: Yay, New South Wales, where John Barillaro says not getting a vaccine today is great news. Also check out John Barillaro's blame-shifting here when he's asked about uh, low vaccination rates in remote and rural Indigenous communities in Western New South Wales, which are currently facing a massive outbreak.
1: Has Western New South Wales
0: not had the attention it should have had?
3: Well, it's not just Western New South Wales. I'd I'd argue it's, it's about our vulnerable communities and our Indigenous communities are part of that vulnerable group. Uh, we know that the federal government's vaccination program at the start of the year identified uh, the Indigenous communities uh, part of the 1A rollout, and it, and it hadn't occurred. And uh, that's something that uh, they lost attention of. And, uh, you know, now we know earlier in the year, the uh, rollout wasn't anywhere where it needed to be. We're in there now. Uh, should they have been vaccinated earlier? Yes, it was all part of the federal government's rollout of the vaccination program at the start of the year. It didn't occur. And now we're having to really get in ha- going hard. Okay,
0: so just to recap, Barilaro is saying it's the Fed's fault. They didn't do the thing that we're doing now, which it actually turns out was our job all along, but we forgot about doing. What Barilaro is actually saying there is it's the federal government's fault that they prioritise a group that he just doesn't care about. And as the Premier herself last week said... But we've also learned a lot, and I think the learnings from New South Wales
2: uh, can be applied to other states when they go through uh, what all states will have
0: to go through. And the most important learning is don't copy what New South Wales did. All right, joining me now on Newsfighters is the Deputy Lord Mayor of Sydney and our first ever Deputy Lord Mayor on the show. It's Jess Scully. (laughs) Jess, how are you going today?
1: Good, Dylan. Good to be with you.
0: Thanks for coming on the show. Now, I've wanted to have you on for a while. And when we were first organising this, it was before the lockdown happened and a lot's changed. I read um, The Guardian was saying 9% of jobs in Greater Sydney were lost in a month thanks to this lockdown. What is what is Sydney going to look like post lockdown, and what kind of things? How's the city going to change? How are we going to rebuild from this?
1: I I think that's probably a pretty accurate uh, prediction, you know, because about. You know 10 percent eight to ten percent of the jobs in mm. in our local government area are actually those hospitality retail um kinds of jobs you know the service economy jobs that were the first to go mm. um, and then there are all the people who work in personal services you know from hairdressers to personal trainers to you know people who work in the arts and creative industries i mean those are actually an enormous part of our local economy and overnight, their their employment was just gone. And so, that's been a big focus for us is, is trying to support people through this crisis. But in terms of what it looks like after, I think there's going to be a slow process of recovery. I think uh, we're going to have to bounce back in a much more cautious way. So, I... I, I think kind of the silver lining is that we're going to be doing a lot of stuff outside. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see more dining, drinking, I think more retail outside. Right. I'm imagining that we're going to have, you know, over the past uh, year, we've been reclaiming uh, car spaces and footpaths and turning them into places for people to hang out and socialize and play music. And, and that's going to expand, but I think it's going to expand to even more businesses. Like I'm imagining I'll be getting haircuts outside. People are going to be getting their knuckles done yep. out. In, in, in former car spaces, um, we'll be, I hope, we'll be closing streets and having more events and um, just kind of more normal life happening but in the sunshine. And that kind of makes sense for Sydney going into summer.
0: Mm. And, and in terms of long-term, will this will this stick around? Uh, do you think we'll be hopefully having more, I don't know, I want to see block parties and streets closed down and out and more of that kind of stuff. Do you think that'll happen long-term?
1: If we look at what's happened overseas, uh, a lot of those installations that took from places like New York and London, that they went out and reclaimed footpaths and closed streets uh, last year, they've become much more permanent. And I think it's likely that that's going to happen here too. It's going to take a process. Recently at the city, we extended um, the, that outdoor dining, the alfresco program until the middle of 2022. And after that point, it'll need to go an exhibition. It'll need to go through kind of a planning and regulatory process to make it more formal because all this stuff happened under emergency powers basically mm-hmm. um- and I think they'll also be need to be made more beautiful and more permanent as well if they become permanent. So I'd love to see instead of the concrete barricades, actually, you know, beautifully designed platforms, you know, trees and, and planting and, and all of those kinds of things that are going to beautify the streetscape. But I do think maybe the lasting urban impact of COVID is going to be reclaiming more space for people to congregate and enjoy the outdoors in Sydney. And that's a really positive outcome.
0: And what about uh, events to bring people back? I know that the noodle market's a, a huge thing. I lived in Toronto. They had free outdoor concerts every weekend. New York, before COVID, had 100 free outdoor concerts um, every summer. What's happened in Sydney? We used to have great free outdoor concerts during Sydney Festival, and that feels like they've disappeared. Is an insurance issue or a policing issue? Or Are we going to get more of these kind of things back, do you think?
1: I think so. Yeah. Um- one thing I've been working on with the events sector over the past couple of months is the, there's a lack of insurance that actually covers communicable disease. And hmm. so anyone who puts on an event now is taking on 100% of the risk if there's a border closure or yep. um, restrictions or anything like that. Well, and even bested,
0: That happened, the classic example, yeah. Massive exactly. Losses. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So, and that's not just for the kind of fun entertainment events, but kind of conferences and business right. events and, and exhibitions and things like that, that that are a huge economic driver for the city. They're all at risk of not taking place. So, we actually do need the government to step in. They've done it in the UK. They've done it in Germany to provide, um, to, to underwrite that component of a commercial insurance policy. So, it, it gives that sector confidence to go ahead and book an event for you know January, February, March next Mm. year because at the moment the forward calendar is looking pretty bare and you know in Australia we've always relied on having an exciting festival season over summer. Artists have always relied on that Mm. and I'm a bit worried that that's not going to happen this summer. Uh, So if we want events to be part of our recovery, governments are going to need to step up and start supporting the event sector to be there when the recovery is happening. Um, I do think a lot of people have been anticipating events being part of the recovery. And so, what I'm hoping for is that we have a distributed approach. So, rather than kind of big blockbuster events to actually have smaller um, and more manageable niche events, you know, I would love to see a festival in Surrey Hills, in Newtown, you know, in Redfern rather than, you know, a huge thing at the domain. Because I kind of think the other big mindset shift that comes post-COVID and post-lockdown is... Everything used to be about the biggest event with as many people as you get through the gate. It's not going to be like that anymore. We have to go for more niche, manageable um, and and I suppose COVID safe events need that level of um, uh, 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 to be to be more niche, actually, mm. so that they're manageable, which is kind of great for emerging musicians, for subcultures that that can't attract massive crowds either. So maybe it will lead to a, a flourishing of more niche offerings being supported as well. Amazing. Um, and
0: sorry if it's super topical and you don't know the answer yet, or don't want to don't want to talk about it. But today uh, on Thursday, the premier announced uh, the reopening roadmap, which is uh, letting fully vaccinated people. Um, go out when uh, we're at 70 percent fully vaccinated will this also apply to city of sydney things like libraries and swimming pools uh, when are the pool- are the pools going to reopen for the summer that's what I want to know
1: <laughs> I'm really hopeful yeah, I-, yeah. I read that quite excitedly and it does seem like um, that the- there will be an we will be able to make decisions about opening mm-hmm. um, one of the challenges we have is that of course it's not financially viable to open a lot mm-hmm. of facilities um, at, at those restrictions. So we will have to continue to um, kind of take a haircut in terms of, of making revenue and, and ma- mm-hmm. you know, so it'll, it'll cost us more to keep the pools open and run them. It's but it's
0: th- capacity, yeah.
1: Exactly. But I think it is a priority for us. It's something we really want. I've missed the pools. I've missed the library. Like I know other people have too. So it is a priority for us to try and get those places open again. Uh, But it's really exciting to see things like, um, you know, that there is a consideration that you can have more capacity outdoors for hospitality venues, for example, than indoors. So that's encouraging. It's an incentive to have that more outdoor activation as well. So there were some really good things in that roadmap.
0: So does this mean we'll see more of what's happened in the rocks with with pub and what happened in New York with pubs will be able to take over their their parking spaces out the front of their at the front of their venue for instance and put put tables in and that kind of thing?
1: I think so. I do think there's a lot of work, kind of regulatory work that needs to happen to enable that. I mean, some really good, there's some really good uh, stuff that's already happened. So now your liquor license follows you out onto the footpath for a venue, which is, was a hurdle for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now made it possible for entertainment licenses to also flow out so that there's no issue around having entertainment in those spaces. But you know what? things like noise complaints still apply Mm. Um, you don't have soundproofing you don't have the the same level of control as a venue as you do when you've got performers indoors or when you've got patrons indoors so i think there's going to have to be both a community a change in the community and how we uh, live with uh, urban sound and entertainment sound uh, and because we've gone from being having this very, very quiet period of, of the lockdowns to what is going to be a much noisier city because more stuff is yes. going to be happening outdoors, right? And then I think we actually need the state government to to look finally at noise regulation and complaints and how do we manage that in a way that's consistent and fair for everyone in the process? Because noise complaints is an absolute mess. Mm -hmm. The whole area is a nightmare, right? So councils are compliance organisations. We have to respond to complaints. Police respond to complaints. There are other entities like Liquor and uh, and Gaming who respond to complaints. Um, It's, you know, there's been some talk over the past few years about the inconsistency and the overlap of different government departments around noise complaints, but no one's actually solved the problem yet and we need the state government to solve the problem, I think, for this summer.
0: Yeah, if we want to be a world-class city. I was at a bar in Redfern and they closed the beer garden at 8pm at because of the neighbours and it's just not – given the weather, we should be more, have more rooftop bars and be, be more of an outdoor city and, heaven forbid, be able to get a decent coffee after 4pm. That's what I <laughs> –
1: well, you have to switch immediately to espresso martinis, basically, if you want a coffee yes. after 4 p.m. in Sydney. Yes, but, exactly. yeah, that's that's the thing. Um, yeah, w- we do – we've got a, a kind of cultural evolution that has to take place in Sydney as well because we've gone from having a sort of s- a suburban expectation of of lifestyle in an mm-hmm. urban context. Like I want all the convenience of living in a big city without with the kind of I want to also hear the birds singing in the trees outside my window. It's like, well, w- 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 there's a bit of cultural work that needs to, to go mm. alongside the regulatory work.
0: Mm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, City of Sydney's promised to go net zero by 2035. Is that correct?
1: Ha- yeah, we have. Yeah. And we're getting there, we're, we're pretty close. Yeah, how are you going to do
0: this and can you have a word to the federal government for us and tell them (laughs) it is possible? It can be done.
1: It can be done. You know, I know it can be done because since 2006, we've had this massive uplift in – people moving into the cities in, into the city into into new businesses coming to the city we've added all of these facilities and yet we've reduced our emissions as an organization by 76% on on our 2006 levels we've reduced our use of water we've reduced our waste and in you know, increased the amount of waste that's actually being um, recycled and going, uh, being diverted from landfill. So, it can be done. And some of the main things that we did were moving to electrification for as much of, of our, you know, our, um, our fleet. We, we we switched over, you know, kind of what you do at home. We switched over all the light bulbs in every street mm-hmm. lamp. And then we got Osgrid we paid Ausgrid to do the same in our area and now they're continuing it in other parts of the city. And then the other thing that we did that was major was switch over to 100% renewable. Um, And part of that, and something I'm really proud of is that we made sure that part of that buy actually comes from community renewables in regional New South Wales to actually enable that just transition. So from wind farms and solar farms in like the Shoalhaven and Gleniness and Wagga Wagga where it's actually creating the industries of the future for those regions. The state government can do this too. The federal government can do this too, you know. And we just need help on a few other things like um, waste and helping us actually have regional level waste uh, treatment and resource and recovery facilities and, um, you know, actually putting in some changes to the way we build the built environment so that you actually have – um, dual plumbing in every building that's built so we're not flushing drinking water in the driest continent mm-hmm. on earth you know there's stuff that's outside our control that we just need them to do but it's all super achievable uh and yeah you know anything good that's ever happened in history is all come from pressure from the bottom up it's never actually come from leadership from the top down so i think if we take concrete action at a local level um and then put pressure up on governments to perform, they have to eventually come to the party.
0: Well, here's hoping. Now, the the main reason I'm speaking to you today, I wanted to line up this interview, is uh, the New South Wales local council elections, uh, the 4th of December. Now, as far as I know, even though we have compulsory voting, these have the lowest voter turnout in Australia, why aren't young people going out and voting? Do they just think, yeah, uh, this is just you pick who empties the bins? Is that what <laughs> is that what people think yeah. local councils do, and that's it?
1: Yeah, pretty much. It's not just that. It's like a lot of people don't even think they're entitled to vote. Like I've met people who said, oh, you know, I'm a tenant. I don't get to vote in my local government election. I'm like, yes, you do. (laughs) Um, You know, more than 50% of people in my local area in the city of Sydney are renters. They're not landlords. So imagine how many people we're not hearing from. Um, We need everyone to go out and vote on December 4, you know, make sure that your enrollment's updated and that you're, you know, enrolled where you actually live because, you know, we take really tangible climate action at a local level. Um, we, we're really interested in funding the arts and nightlife and creativity. We're really interested in social justice and affordable housing, all of those sorts of things. But we can't do what we do if we don't actually hear from other people who think that's a priority and i disproportionately hear from people who are older richer and whiter than the demo you know the community that i actually represent Mm. so the more young people who actually get involved and and by young i mean under 60 i just want to be clear Mm. um you know i want you to (laughs) at the older i get the older young is so um you know so I just need, you know, everyone get involved because it makes a difference, actually, whether there's a cycleway uh, out, out in front of your place or a car space or whether there's an affordable housing block or, you know, luxury apartments. You know, those are decisions that are actually influenced very strongly at a local level and you have to have your say.
0: Yeah, and it's statewide, so everyone across New South Wales has to remember to vote. Now, you're a member of Team Clover. Clover Moore, great Lord Mayor of Sydney, been Lord Mayor for 17 years now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are, you the, are you the next Clover? Are we going to have a, a hashtag Team Clover spill coming up? What's,
1: <laughs> she, she can't be
0: Lord Mayor forever, even though I'm sure a lot of Sydney would like her to be.
1: <laughs> oh, she's amazing. I mean, I just am so blown away constantly by her energy and her, her enthusiasm, you know, after... Like she's been in this game for forty years. Like she got mm-hmm. elected to local government in nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. um, and then she was then she represented Sydney, you know, in state parliament as well. And she's been through like more premiers and prime ministers than like you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And yet she's kind of continues to provide this consistency and leadership and um, and stability for Sydney that I think is really important. So I've been really privileged to learn from her and understand. get that sort of depth of knowledge like sometimes we can have a bit of a goldfish experience Mm -hmm. as new generations come through the city so it's been really awesome you know learning how how that works and seeing what it takes brilliant brilliant all right so the message is everyone go out and vote on the 4th of december Yes, please. Everywhere, wherever you are. And you know what? A lot of people sometimes are still enrolled, like in the last place they lived or, you know, at their parents' house or like, you know, just make sure you're enrolled where you live because where you live, local politics matters.
0: Absolutely. And if you can't vote in person because you're scared of COVID, I assume there's other ways to vote. You can... Is, we are reckon doing this other is going to be,
1: yeah, there's e-voting. Oh, wow. uh, so you'll actually be able to vote online. Um, there'll be postal voting and there'll also, of course, be, I think in-person voting is, is also really likely, but I think most people who can are probably going to vote online. Uh, so, yeah, check it out. There's There should be, some, I'll be sharing some more information on socials as soon as I have it about um, about how to vote online so i'm just jess scully sydney on instagram and um you know i'm on all the platforms you can't you can't avoid me um and i'll i'll share all the info there terrific great thanks for joining us jess scully thanks dylan cheers thank you
0: all right that's news fighters for today the 10th of september 2021 news fighters is written produced and edited by me dylan bain for SansPants pants radio don't forget to subscribe to us on youtube and or your podcasting app of choice. To support the show and get bonus monthly episodes, pay to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash newsfighters or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash newsfighters. Also, we don't advertise on Facebook, so keep up to date with what's happening by getting our free Substack newsletter at newsfighters.com. Also find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at NewsFightersPod. And now here it is, your favourite new weekly Christopher Pine-based segment, Whiff of Pine. We lost one of our children in uh, Florence, actually. Not the... Uffizi. No, it wasn't in the Uffizi. It was actually in Venice, in uh, the Guggenheim. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where were they? Oh, I don't know. <laughs>
3: <laughs> they were very little. This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to. It's a bad bag, man.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.